It's my absolute pleasure to introduce Lynn Alden. Lynn is the founder of Lynn Alden Investment Strategy and by far one of the most respected and well-known people in finance and Bitcoin. When she writes or speaks, everybody drops what they're doing, at least I do, and listens. Thank you so much, Lynn, for taking the time to share some of your knowledge. Thanks for having me on your show. Um, I just want to get started on a bit of your background because I know that a lot of my subscribers aren't really that, well, a lot of them aren't in the world of finance or just starting to dip their toes in the world of Bitcoin. So if you could tell us a little bit about your background, what you did before getting involved in Bitcoin and crypto, um, and what about this technology sort of made you take a deeper dive into it? Uh, so my background is in electrical engineering. Uh, and so I worked for 10, about 10 years, or uh, it depends on how you measure it, really 12 years in some cases. But basically, I worked for quite a while as an electrical engineer, kind of worked up the ranks, became engineering management. Uh, so I started doing finance and and overseeing the, the facility more so than doing hands-on engineering. Uh, and on the side, I've always been interested in investing. So I've always been looking at different types of stocks. That includes technology stocks, but also includes non-technology stocks, uh, certain commodities, uh, things like that. Uh, and so my my first contact with Bitcoin was actually back in, it would have been 2010 or 2011, where I had a friend that that mined it. On or, it was like back when you could do it with a GPU. It was really early. Uh, and so like I looked at I spent like an hour or two kind of looking it up, and I thought it was neat, but I had no idea how to price it and just kind of was like, oh, that's cool. And then, you know, just kind of, you know, went on my way. Uh, and then I, I always like kind of, you know, I, I would hear about it once in a while. I'd be like, oh, now it's like a hundred bucks. That's like, wow, it's really doing good. But I just like, I don't know how to, you know, it wasn't like a big market at that time. And so it wasn't, still wasn't fully on my radar. And then the first time it really kind of came onto my radar as like an investment uh, option was in 2017 when we had that, that large bull run. Uh, and so, I actually had uh, around the same time, it was you know in my engineering uh, uh, procurement, we were actually having trouble getting graphics cards. And uh, a junior engineer was like, oh, that's because of the Ethereum bubble. I was like, what's an Ethereum bubble? And so <laughs> like, so yeah, I got like the 101 on what Ethereum is. That was back when it was, you know, it was probably like $200 per, per Ether or something like that. Uh, and so, you know, basically we had tangible issues. We had trouble getting graphics cards because of this. And I was like, I better look into this. Um, and so I did kind of a, an article back then on the space. Uh, and at the time, I was basically at a, at a pretty favorable article uh, on the space, uh, but I still kind of didn't know how to price it. And I said, you know, especially because I was I was covering it in late 2017 after that very large run up and I was like, it's very euphoric. Um, and so I, I still passed on it, uh, but I was like, it is, you know, I'm definitely gonna keep my eye on it now. Uh, and so some of the concerns I had at that time uh, were generally addressed over the next couple of years. You had a price consolidation. Uh, we saw some of the the outcomes of the different fork wars or the you know the which which networks are kind of in the lead. Uh, and so when it came time to, for early 2020, when we had markets around the world crashing and for different reasons back in March, uh, so when I saw them kind of rebounding in April, uh, that's when I bought into to Bitcoin. And I've been covering the space a lot, so it's kind of like. My first touch with it, I might have put two hours into researching it. The second time I looked at it, it might have been 20 hours. Uh, and this last time is when I put like hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours uh, because I finally I finally got it, basically. I, I saw the technology in a way and I really put the time in to, to see what's going on. Amazing. Would you say that um, touching on your engineering background, would you say that that 
also helped you when you started diving into the more deeper aspects of the technology for you to grasp it a little bit? Or was it always more of an investment and, and looking at it from, say, a macro perspective? The engineering was certainly helpful. Uh, and so, you know, that's, I kind of looked at it the first time through an engineering lens. I just, I want to know how it worked. And I was like, that's cool. And I didn't look at every detail about how it works, but I got the general idea. And so I wasn't like confused about how the general idea works. Um, but it was kind of like that intersection of everything together. When it became big enough, I'm like, okay, this is a real thing. Uh, and uh, then I looked at it in more technical depth. Uh, and so the, definitely the engineering helped a lot there. Now, my background is not is not firmly in software. I've written code and I've overseen software coders. Uh, so, I, you know, I, it's, it's like I know enough to, to know what I don't know, kind of. But like I, I can poke around and see what's going on. And so overall, you know, that's that's certainly been a helpful component. And then the other the other component is the fact that I have experience with precious metals and the idea of, of you know, hard money, for example, or you know the history of what has been used as money, uh, and so those those kind of that Venn diagram of those two kind of things coming together, I think, was what what made me kind of eventually realize uh, that it's actually you know an investable space. Interesting. Um, I'd like to touch on a topic that's pretty popular nowadays, and I suppose it'll be continued to be popular. Um, you've written a lot about it, which is inflation, um, and I was wondering if you could explain how inflation or what inflation is, how it gets measured, and how you see it playing out over the next couple months and years and decades. Because I know, well, the Fed has come out saying that it's going to be transitory. Um, and I guess there's a lot of voices within Bitcoiners that it's not going to be transitory. So I'd like to hear your opinion on that. Uh, so in general, inflation, you know, there's that quote, it's, it's everywhere a monetary phenomenon. And I think, you know, that has a lot of truth. That might overstate it. But in general, you know, if you look around the world, you see where where price inflation has happened. You almost always see that the money supply is going up by quite a bit. Uh, and so generally that can happen for a couple of reasons. Either banks can lend it into existence, uh, which is generally the normal process of, of, of creating money in a fiat currency system, uh, or the government can run very large deficits and have the central bank basically create new money to buy the bonds associated with those deficits. And therefore they kind of go around the banking system or, or, you know, straight through the banking system. And they just kind of put more money into existence. They spend more into the economy without removing it. And if you do that enough, you, you can get a really rapid increase in the money supply. And so everybody suddenly has more money to buy things with, but the, the actual things are still limited. Uh, and so, you know, you, you start running into either shortages or the price goes up until you know you find the actual kind of market price for that, and so you can certainly have periods of transitory inflation where you know there's a specific thing that that is is say a supply shortage. Let's say a bunch of copper mines you know are striking, and so now copper is in short supply. Uh, well, you know that can happen. That that specific commodity can spike in price even if there's no growth in the money supply. That's a specific supply bottleneck. Uh, and once it's resolved, we, we would expect the price of copper to come back down to its more normal level. The same thing happened in, in lumber uh, in, in certain places this, this past year where you know timber didn't spike in price. Uh, so there's no shortage of, of felled trees, uh, but there's a, a, a shortage in how much capacity in sawmills could turn that timber into lumber. And so when everybody wanted to, wanted to go build a suburban home at the same time, there's only so much sawmill capacity. Uh, and so they ran into a bottleneck. Uh, and so generally there's, there's, you know, 
at a broad prices generally go up due to the money supply increasing at a faster rate than goods and services, whereas you can have those more transitory, uh, you know, one-off uh, type of events. The other, the other thing I would add is that, you know, transitory and rate of change terms is different than transitory and absolute terms. So, you know, prices can go up rapidly and then they can stop going up, but they can still stay at that high level, right? So it's transitory in terms of it's not just continuing to go up and up and up, uh, but it's not like it. It's not like those general prices come back down. That's that's sometimes what you see. For example, say in the 1940s in the United States, you had these spikes of inflation, and you'd have prices permanently go to a new higher plateau, and then they wouldn't just keep increasing until maybe a couple of years later there'd be another spike and there'd be another higher plateau of prices. So there's a couple of ways that inflation can manifest. And. Along those lines, would you say, how do you see inflation playing out over the next couple months and years with recent, I guess, money printing and I guess sort of looking at it from your macro perspective? Do you think it is transitory? Do you think it, um, and I guess it'll probably tie into the next question, which is a little bit of how you see um, the dollar's hegemony as a reserve currency, especially in face of these inflationary pressures. So I generally expect to see pretty sticky inflation, uh, but then the rate of change will depend in part on how much more fiscal spending happens in some of these countries. And so if you look back, you know, say over the past year and a half to the beginning of 2020, uh, say, you know, the United States money supply went up faster than most other advanced nations. Uh, Canada was up there as well, uh, whereas towards the bottom, you had Japan. Uh, in the middle, you had China, Europe, uh, and Britain. Uh, and so you know, if you look at those countries, for example, we generally see more inflation in the United States where we increased our money supply fast. We, we ran much larger deficits as a percentage of GDP. And so, you know, we our economy in, in some ways, you know, it came up faster from the, the, the pandemic lockdown uh, recession. Uh, but we also dealt with with more inflation, whereas if you look at uh, some of these other economies, you know, they might have recovered slower and they also have less inflation. And so my overall base case is that, you know, it's largely going to depend on fiscal decisions, uh, which, you know, can vary from country to country. And generally, each country has their own, uh, you know, bottlenecks, right? So the United States, we have a tightly divided Senate. In Europe, they, you know, they, they combine multiple of their currencies into the euro. So, you know, not only do they have like, you uh, know, in, in, in the United States, we have different, different states arguing with each other. They have different countries arguing with each other. Uh, Japan is more unified, uh, so they're able to, you know, they have a little bit less polarization. Uh, and then, of course, different emerging markets will have different, uh, you know, their own kind of characteristics that are happening. Uh, and so, you know, we don't, we don't, for example, see a ton of money supply growth out of Russia. We don't see a ton of money supply growth out of China. They're at somewhat more normal levels. Uh, and so I think it'll vary around. Now, of course, there, there's, you know, there's still kind of issues that you can have if you're, Currency is say not going up in value a lot, but its exchange rate is still going down temporarily. Like we saw that with Russia, where you know they did not do a lot of fiscal spending, but their ruble still lost value, especially when oil prices were going down. Uh, and so that that can still vary. Overall, for the dollar hegemony, my overall kind of base case here is that the the world's kind of becoming more multi-currency, multipolar. And so it used to be the case that all energy worldwide was priced in dollars. So no matter what country buys oil from another country, it's always in dollars. And that was because of specific agreements that, that the United States made with OPEC back in the 70s. Uh, and so that that's generally been the rule for a long period of time. There have been occasional deviations, uh, but for the most part, that's been structurally happening. 
But ever since you know, the past uh, several years, you start to see, for example, Russia selling their oil in euros. Uh, we see that you know China is more interested in, in being able to use their currency to to buy some commodities and energy as well. And so we're seeing around the margins uh, that that's that's shifting over time. We're also seeing that you know if you look at the the currencies that different countries have in in their reserves, uh, it used to be very very dollar focused, and it still is. Uh, but that percentage that is that is you know in in dollars or treasuries is gradually declining over time as these countries diversify their reserves a little bit. And then there's some outliers like Russia that you know pretty much completely de-dollarize, and they focus heavily on the euro. They focus heavily on gold. They focus somewhat on on China's currency uh, because that you know that's more of a specific situation. Whereas most countries they're still very dollar heavy, but it is decreasing over time, which makes sense because in the in the beginning of the system. The United States was maybe 35% of global GDP, where we were the world's biggest energy importer. Uh, and so we could kind of get away with, with making sure everything is priced in dollars. But as, as over time, as you've seen the rise of China, as you've seen uh, you know, just uh, overall growth in the world uh, that's, that's you know, faster than the United States on average, especially among emerging markets, uh, the United States' share of global GDP has gone down. Now it's about 20%. We're no longer now. Now we're the second, you know, like the second biggest energy importer, uh, and so generally, what we're seeing is a little bit more diversification and decentralization. But that, that is, of course, is a really long kind of you know slow process. Um, yeah, that that makes sense. That I suppose that the dollar losing its dominance will obviously take a long time, and it'll play out a bunch, according to a bunch of different factors. And you touched on something that I that I think is that's linked quite closely to where I live in here in Chile, which is a third world country, an emerging market, um, and sort of to, to connect it to Bitcoin specifically. Do you see a case or what would be the case for Bitcoin within emerging markets? Well, certainly, I mean, one of the, the you know, the advantages of Bitcoin is that it, it has this pretty long history now of, of going up over time. And so it can be quite volatile. And so in, in developed countries, a lot of people don't get why someone would own Bitcoin uh, other than speculation. And it's because they're used to having pretty uh, stable currencies. Uh, whereas emerging markets, they generally, some of them are currently going through very bad periods of inflation. And other ones generally still have inflation somewhere in their memory over the past you know, uh, 20 years or so. Uh, whereas the United States, we have to pretty much go back to the 70s to, to you know, have a memory of strong inflation. Uh, and so... In in a lot of those markets, you know, it's it's in some ways I think it's an easier selling point of why they might want to hold something that's not their own government currency uh, that that can't be debased uh, in any sort of reasonable way uh, or easy way, uh, and that they they are owning something that's scarce. Uh, and then of course, some countries have capital controls. Uh, Bitcoin makes those more difficult to enforce. Uh, and so it means different things to different countries. I and mean, obviously in, in, say, Lebanon, right, they have a much worse inflation problem than many other countries. And so that's, you know, it's a more extreme situation. But across the board, I mean, I think it's one of those things where Bitcoin can benefit, you know, people in every country. But I think it just so happens that emerging markets, I, I think, can get the, the the reasons for it maybe a little bit faster. Yeah, Um I would definitely agree, especially looking at our neighbors, Argentina, Venezuela, a bit to the north. It's kind of a lot more in your face, that possibility of rampant inflation, hyperinflation, capital control, and the need for something that, yeah, protects wealth in a pretty, although volatile, but pretty established way already. Um, 
You've written about network effects, um, and you touched just now that Bitcoin does have a re. I mean, I guess not a very long history, but over the past twelve years, it has inserted itself, and it's um, inserting itself even more as time goes on. Do you think you could briefly explain what network effects are um, and how they're useful when researching um, not only Bitcoin, but other assets? Yeah, so network effects are a phenomenon where the more people that use it, uh, the more valuable the, the network gets exponentially, right? So if, if only five people in the world have phones, a phone is not a very useful invention, but if half the people in the world have phones, then suddenly it's one of the best inventions ever. Uh, and so basically the phone gets exponentially more useful the more people you can call with it. Uh, and so the same is true for email. The same is true for social networks, right? You wouldn't, wouldn't want to have a social network with almost no one on it. Uh, and so that's generally one of the strongest economic moats that a company or a protocol can have against competition is the fact that they've already achieved network dominance. And so I, I could make, for example, I, I could hire a programmer. We make a, uh, like a copy of Facebook. It looks similar, uh, but then I'd have almost no chance to get people to actually use my version of Facebook. Uh, it just I, there'd be no kind of flywheel to get that started because there's, there's it's a dead zone anyway. Even if I threw a billion dollars at it, I could get probably a couple million people there, but they would quickly just go back to the you know the real the real major social networks, uh, as an example, uh, and so. That's true. Also, I've used the example of Wikipedia. I could, you know, you could, Wikipedia. You can download the data. I could host it on my website, and it would it would kind of look like Wikipedia, but you know, it wouldn't have the millions of links around the world pointing pointing to it the same way the real Wikipedia does. That's the thing I can't replicate. That's the network effect. And I also I can't replicate the fact that there's so many users on Wikipedia updating it. I can't convince them to come update mine instead. And so mine will always be this this kind of shadow of the real thing. Uh, and so. My biggest concern with looking at cryptocurrencies, especially back in 2017, was, okay, so it's open source, anyone can make a, a copy of it. Uh, and so the whole idea of scarcity is then challenged if someone can just make Bitcoin 2 or Bitcoin 3 uh, and or Ethereum 2. Uh, and so I was like, you know, I, I was concerned that, you know, even if the space takes off, it's neat technology, the capital could go in and just diffuse among like so many different protocols, like basically a permanent alt season where just like everything kind of goes up and down and nothing really kind of accumulates persistent value. Uh, and so, but then I, I kind of just kept studying the space more and I saw that the network effects apply very strongly to, to cryptocurrency. And they generally network effects apply to money in general. I mean, part of why the dollar has hegemony in addition to just the United States military strength, the history of how we got here is that it's kind of self-sustaining as a network effect. Uh, and so, you know, there's dollar-denominated debt around the world, including in, in uh, uh, Chile. Uh, and so that basically makes, that's demand for dollars, right? Because all these countries need dollars in order to service their dollar-denominated debt. Uh, and then out of, out of kind of ease, lenders, when they lend more money, they often do it in dollars. They could do it in euros. Sometimes they do, but that dollar has the strongest network effect in that space. And that's why you know, you know, generally diversifying away from it is a slow process, right? Because it's so entrenched already. Uh, and so with Bitcoin, for example, or, or cryptocurrencies in general, uh, the fact that it's, that the security is tied to the is, is, is tied to how popular it is generally, right? So it's, it's much harder to attack. That makes it, you know, more desirable to begin with. So more people stick with it. That makes it even more secure. Uh, we also see, for example, that more developers work on the top cryptocurrencies, so they get they get better hardware wallets, they get better applications, uh, they get better security and and, and upgrades over time. 
than some of the ones that kind of get left behind. And so we start to see over time that, that cryptocurrencies start to resemble social networks in the sense that they have these network effects and you're going to have, you know, most likely just a small number of them rise to the top and that long tail of thousands of cryptocurrencies, you know, for the most part don't matter. And so the two that I consider to have really strong network effects this time would be Bitcoin and Ethereum. Uh, whereas the other ones, you know, they they might have kind of interesting use cases. They're they're showing interesting technology, uh, but they still haven't you know reached a network effect uh, that is 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 kind of self-sustaining. An example I like to use is you know the whole internet runs on TCP/IP, uh, and you know they, it could have been you know it could have been designed a little bit differently. Someone can make a competing protocol. In fact, there have been competing protocols, but they never catch on because the entire internet's kind of set up to use this, this one method. And so even if I came along and said, hey, I have this, this, this method that's like, you know, 5% better than, than TCP IP, people would say, oh, we don't care because the fact that, that none of the websites in the world are going to interact with your protocol already makes your protocol a million times worse, even if it's 5% more efficient. Uh, and so if anything, TCP IP could maybe kind of incorporate some of my ideas, make, make theirs better. Uh, but my protocol will never catch on. Uh, and so generally, basically, in order to disrupt an existing network effect, the up-and-comer has to be like 10 times better. It has to be like so much better that you you eventually just can't not switch. It's clearly superior. Uh, and so we and so we see, for example, that these, these network effects rise to the top. And then the question is, can they sustain them? Can they upgrade enough to make sure that nothing comes along that's, say, 10 times better? And then they can kind of, you know, remain kind of the kings of the space. Interesting. Yeah, I have that um, that same discussion at home with WhatsApp and alternatives to WhatsApp. Um, and sort of the conversation is usually goes along those lines. It's like, well, everybody uses WhatsApp. So why would I even think about switching? And the network effects are just way too broad and pervasive for it to even question the use of it. Um yeah, really good example. Like, in, uh, we have the delete Facebook movement, right? So hashtag delete Facebook, uh, and uh, yet people are still there. Uh, and and just because it's, it's you know uh, they can go, they can make their own thing, but they you know they can't reach critical mass. We saw the same thing with Parler. Uh, they tried to make their own version of Twitter and Facebook. Uh, you know, obviously they ran into some some regulatory issues, but they still that you know it's just kind of a critical mass thing. It's really hard to disrupt one of them. It can happen. It's just it's one of those things that's super challenging. And would you say that dis- that disruption only comes from a sort of technolo- technological point of view, or what is there anything else that would kind of tip into sort of that sort of disruption and breaking some some assets or networks network effects? <laughs> usually, it's you know the, the examples that I can think of. It's usually technology that allowed a network to to you know a new network to come that's ten times better than the previous ones. And so there's all sorts of examples where, you know, existing, like, uh, I use the example in the United States, we have, we have UPS and FedEx as our major uh, shipping services. And they're both these very large corporations. They have sites all around the, the country, very, very hard to displace. They're basically a duopoly along with the United States Postal Service. So three main services. And the biggest logistics company in, in Europe decided they want to break into the, the, the North American market. Uh, and that was, this was like, you know, 10, 15 years ago. And they spent like $10 billion uh, acquiring a couple like logistics companies and kind of building that out. And they eventually still just couldn't do it. They just couldn't break in enough to get profitable because they just couldn't compete with how many sites and infrastructure those two big ones already had. And so that's an example where unless they came up with some brilliant technology that allows like, you know, 10 times better 
packaging, it's really hard to break into that market. Uh, and so we see that, for example, with uh, stock exchanges or futures exchanges, where once one of them becomes very entrenched, and that's where most of the liquidity trades, then that that kind of futures contract, for example, becomes kind of the benchmark. And even though there might be other ones that that come along, they generally have trouble getting anywhere near the same amount of volume and liquidity as that big one uh, in that country. Uh, and so it, it is pretty rare to have a network effect displaced um, outside of either the government comes in and it does like antitrust activity to kind of purposely break it up if it's something like that, uh, or it, it's it's often technology based. Interesting. Um Going back into, or I guess staying on Bitcoin, um, what would you say are your main concerns with the protocol, um, maybe from a regulatory perspective, from an investor perspective? Um, yeah, when, when I guess it took you a while to even get, it took you six years to sort of dive deep. And I, I suppose that you approached it with... Um, a lot of scrutiny and kind of looking at risks, rewards and everything. So I'd like to know your opinion on what are the main risks that you see associated with it. I think that the first one is just making sure the network effects are strong, right? And so uh, make sure that there's no other kind of one that would compute Bitcoin, at least in terms of store value, right? So we have Ethereum competing on smart contracts. It's also dabbling in, in store value to some extent. Uh, but besides those two big ones, there's not there's kind of a big gap between any of the others. Uh, so I, I watched that space. I watched development that's happening on Bitcoin, on Lightning, uh, some of the surrounding ecosystem, things like that. I want to see continued advancements there. Uh, and then really, you know, apart from that, it's mostly a regulatory standpoint. Uh, and so we've seen some countries ban it. And then, you know, they, some of them actually kind of walk their ban back. Uh, and so it, it's kind of a challenging thing where they can't ban Bitcoin, but they can ban themselves from Bitcoin. And then they start realizing maybe this was a bad idea. And then they reverse course. You know, I think that one of the the major kind of tail risks would be if, say, the United States and Europe uh, uh, banned it, uh, because that would be a big enough blow that, you know, there, there's so much of the capital uh, in the space is in the United States and to a lesser extent Europe, uh, that that could actually, you know, slow adoption down by a meaningful amount, uh, I think, at least for a period of time. And they, they can't, you know, it'd be very hard for them to say, you can't own Bitcoin, it's illegal, we're actually going to, you know, make sure you don't own Bitcoin. But what they can do is make it so that banking systems can't send, uh, you know, fiat currency. They basically ban all of the fiat currency on ramps in a similar way that Nigeria did. But for Nigeria, it, it mainly just affects Nigeria, uh, and they do peer-to-peer -peer trading. Uh, whereas United States and Europe, if you were to cut those on ramps off, uh, that could, you know, seriously slow down market cap accumulation. Uh, on the other hand, it's you know, in the United States, for example, uh, you know, we have a lot of guns here, uh, and so whenever there's say a big school shooting or there's a president that gets elected that, that's not very favorable towards guns, a lot of people that like guns go out and buy more guns because they're they're worried that they're worried that they might not be able to buy them uh, in the future. It would be harder to buy them in the future. And so they go out and just they actually have, you know, like the one of the best things that ever happened for the gun manufacturers was Obama's presidency because they were concerned that he might want to reduce their ability to buy guns. And so you could see that kind of thing ironically with with say Bitcoin and, and some of the other cryptos, where if they get they get you know heavily restricted from being owned, uh, you could have actually people go out and buy a lot just to make sure they get them. And so we actually don't know the full game theory for how that would play out, but I do think that uh, basically a a ban from the banking system from Europe and the United States uh, is big enough that I would consider that you know kind of a concern. And do you think it's 
it's plausible to think of a ban from the United States and from Europe, especially thinking that Europe is pretty fragmented in terms of their own banking. Um, like you have Switzerland that's got one approach. You have, I guess, um, Portugal that has another. Um, yeah, do you see that ban actually being possible? Or, I mean, I guess everything is possible, but like a real chance? I think a very low risk. I think it might have happened earlier, but it didn't. Uh, and now it's big enough, for example, that now it has its own lobbying group. Uh, in fact, that's actually playing out right now in the United States. They're passing an infrastructure bill, and they kind of snuck in this this like way to kind of try to get more taxes out of cryptos. Uh, but it's it's poorly worded because it's, it's written by people that don't fully understand it. And they're basically saying that if you uh, assist in like transferring it for another person, you have to like file these these crazy tax forms. And that can technically apply to miners, that can apply to lightning nodes, uh, that can apply to like DeFi, and it's like un unenforceable. And, you know, people can interpret that as like almost like a mining ban because you can't operate a miner if, if you can't enforce. So basically the, the lobbying group is trying to say, you know, let's let's actually clean this language up so we don't, you know, inadvertently kind of give this industry kind of a regu regulatory nightmare to deal with. Uh, and so that wasn't possible many years ago when it was a tiny, tiny fledgling industry. And so the fact that it's gotten big enough, there's billionaires that own it. There, there are very large companies that own it. Uh, there are senators and, and and representatives that own it. Uh, and we see that across the world now, where where there's politicians that are, that are say Bitcoiners or they're into 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 crypto in general. Uh, and so I do think that that becomes a lower and lower probability now. And I think we've kind of crossed the the event horizon. Uh, you'd have to have a pretty extreme outcome, uh, especially I think in the United States, just because that that goes against a lot of the values of the of the place. Now, the people always reference the fact that you know uh, in the United States, for example, we had a we had a forty year ban on Americans owning gold from the thirties to the seventies. Uh, it was like literally a criminal offense if you owned a ton of gold. Now it wasn't very heavily enforced. They didn't go out and and just kind of check door to door to make sure no one has gold. Uh, but it was kind of like a, enough of a threat that a lot of people didn't did not own gold, uh, and so you know there there has been extreme things in history. My overall base case is I, I think that's a very low probability from any any country that really has you know some degree of of freedom and free markets. Yeah, I think I I, I read today in the morning that the infrastructure bill actually got a bit of a change in the language, and they started adopting a little bit of a friendlier stance towards some of those crypto actors that you were saying, like miners that weren't necessarily brokers or other services. Um, I'd like to gear us into, say, um, CBDCs, because I know that's still a pretty intense topic. Um, here in Chile, there, there's a sort of bank, central banking task force investigating and researching and developing. I'm not sure how far along they are, but I do know that they're looking into it. Um, so I'd like to hear your perspective on how CBDs would look or, um, yeah, stance of central banks towards Bitcoin as well and towards some of these new crypto assets. Yeah, so I think they're, they're certainly coming. Uh, they're certainly on their way here. I mean, we see Bahamas has one. Uh, China's obviously very far along. Uh, they're basically in the process of rolling theirs out. Uh, and you know, most central banks talk to each other, right? So they have the Bank for International Settlements. Uh, they they have these organizations where it's not like they're all working on it individually. They have a lot of resources they can share. Uh, so once once a handful of the countries start to get workable adoptions of it, uh, that that 
can quickly spread uh, to other countries as well. Uh, and so they're, they're certainly sharing notes on that. And, you know, some countries like China are going to love it because China is, you know, rather authoritarian. They, they like to have a lot of surveillance. They like to have a lot of control. And so, you know, a currency that can be, uh, you know, heavily monitored, that can be, say, shut off, addresses can be blacklisted. Um, uh, you know, you could have it expire. You could have it be programmed to only be expended in certain areas or for certain certain categories of goods. Uh, and so that's, you know, something that they like as, as policy tools. Uh, but it's obviously something that a lot of people that, that like privacy or like control of their own assets uh, would really prefer not to have, or at least prefer to have it optional to use it, right? That they can, you know, use it when they have to, but then they can go and as they store their money in Bitcoin, whatever else they want to do, uh, and not be kind of locked into that system. Uh, and so I think that's, you know, if the if we talk about, say, the potential for a Bitcoin ban, I think a rollout of a CBDC is one of those events where you have to be kind of on guard because they they could try to crack down on some of the competitors when they roll that out, especially if there's not a lot of traction for it. If people are kind of pushing back on it and calling it a surveillance, uh, you know, coin and things like that, you know, if 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 people kind of catch on in a negative way, uh, and so I do think that that's that's a, a risk point to watch, uh, and so especially because we've seen literature from the IMF and from a number of central banks where they view CBDCs, they can they can do things like you know, gradually phase out cash. And then the, you, if you're kind of locked into that CBDC system, you can even have negative interest rates uh, more easily. For example, like in Europe, they, they, you know, they have mildly negative interest rates in some cases, but they, you know, some cases they prefer to go even lower, but they know if they go too low, people pull out their money and, and hold it in cash. Uh, but if they phase out cash, that kind of limits their ability to do that. Uh, and they can actually charge even deeper negative rates, which is really undesirable for the people holding it. And so, I think that's going to be an ongoing drama for a while. I also think we have to watch to see how it works between private stablecoin issuers uh, and and uh, governments issuing it. And so, basically, like you know, now we have over a hundred billion dollars of, of private stablecoins, uh, and we have you know companies like Facebook are interested in getting into them. So right now they're heavily used in crypto trading, but they're not really heavily used for payments. Uh, whereas companies like Facebook want to want to roll them out and actually start using them for domestic and international payments. And I think we see we could see a, a few con- uh, companies get into that space. And it'd be interesting to see if some countries, like let's say the United States, for example, try to you know use like private companies as extensions of their CBDCs rather than try to have it issued all directly from them. And so I think you know you could have some countries go the pure government route. And I think you, you could have other ones where they they use some of the private uh, uh, technologies as well. And so I think it's it's still a very dynamic space it's up in the air. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how it plays out, especially because uh, I remember watching an interview not too long ago of the uh, president of the Bank of International Settlements saying something like they're going to have contr- uh, absolute control over the rules and regulations and how to enforce those rules and regulations. So it's kind of a daunting space i guess as to how it it might play out um and he's the head of the of the bank for international settlements that all the central banks basically talk to uh and so that kind of idea can can spread you know it, it's 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 funny that he said things like that out loud it basically there's been a number of research papers uh that just kind of lay out the things they want to do with central bank digital currencies and they're generally all the things that savers wouldn't want but that certain banks or certain governments might want and so that's It'd be interesting to see how they they spin that. I think if they when they roll them out, they generally have to roll them out in a way where 
like in China, for example, when they did when they did tests with it, they just gave people some of this money uh, in certain cities, uh, and and so the incentive was you get free money, and so it's kind of like in order to get people to use it, it's kind of like you have to generally, you know, start start by saying, hey, if you want this like you know free five hundred dollars, you have to sign up for our digital wallet, and you can only get it in this form, and so it kind of has to come with a gift essentially. Yeah. Um, exactly. <laughs> Otherwise it would be kind of hard to sort of convince people just out of the bat to use those systems. Um, what would be given that Bitcoin nerds uh, are pretty anti fiat. Um, what's your position on, on fiat currencies, even holding them for, uh, say retail investors, um, of people thinking of, of including fiat or cash in their portfolios, maybe from sort of a macro investment strategy. So it obviously varies a little bit depending on what what country of someone lives in, uh, what their inflation rate is, what their interest rates are, uh, what their country's debt situation is like. Uh, you know, that basically how, how well they're managing the currency, the growth of the money supply. But overall, I think a general trend we're, we're going to see over this next decade is that many fiat currencies will devalue compared to hard assets. And so their, their interest rates will not be keeping up with inflation. Uh, and so that that's a kind of a broad trend I'm seeing. I mean, even in, in, say, the 2010s decade, if you look at, say, U.S. Treasury bills, uh, they actually failed to keep up with inflation through most of the decade. Uh, and, you know, even though inflation is pretty low, uh, you know, if inflation's like, say, one and a half percent and, you know, T-bills spend most of their time yielding less than a half percent, that means they, they gradually kind of lost purchasing power for most of the decade. And so I think that's accelerating a little bit here in the 2020s. And then if you look back in history, there were periods of time through all, all throughout the world, different places uh, where you have these, these notable currency devaluations. And basically, we have, we have so many countries have so much debt uh, that they can't you know, realistically pay positive real yields on that debt uh, without it kind of bleeding out of control. And so one of the tools they have is to basically just, you know, make sure that they're paying their real yields. Uh, and it could be, it could be in some cases outright negative yields, uh, or it could just be that they're they're slightly positive or zero, but that they're below the inflation rate for a long period of time. And so so bondholders get devalued. And so overall, I'm not a huge fan of holding fiat currencies in, in most countries. Uh, now there could be periods where you want some, like let's say you have a clear bubble forming in other assets. Uh, you might want to rebalance into some cash so that if you do get pullbacks, you could you, that would basically reduce volatility. You could get back into those other assets. But I, I, I like to sometimes say that, you know, ironically, the only speculative asset I own is fiat currency and bonds because it's the only asset I own that I don't like that I don't think has inherent value and that I don't think will be higher five to ten years from now. Whereas every other asset I own, I try to buy high quality things that I think will be more valuable either because they're hard money say gold or Bitcoin, or because, you know, it's a, it's a stock or something else that I think is going to grow over time. And so some of those I could be wrong about, but essentially by having a diverse set of these, these real assets, those are like what I've really kind of treating as money. Uh, whereas fiat currencies, this thing I buy sometimes uh, because I think it might go up in price, meaning that the other things briefly go down in price and I can kind of rebalance into that. So it's kind of, we've, by having negative real yields, you kind of flipped, flipped things on our head of what it means to have savings or what it means to have a, a defensive real asset. Yeah, fiat, I guess, serves the purpose at the end of a sort of buy the dip uh, tool so that when hard assets yeah, do fall, um, fiat serves the purpose of buying them. Um, 
just to finish up, because we're 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 reaching the end of, of the interview, I was, and I guess this might be a little bit of speculation, but I'd like to hear your opinion on um, Bitcoin becoming, say, reserve currency, not necessarily of the world, but becoming a reserve currency of certain countries and of becoming, say, you you mentioned that you have a, a strong grasp on gold and precious metals, perhaps, um, yeah, displacing gold. In, in a lot of reserve treasuries or as the giant market that it is. Um, where do you see Bitcoin over the next coming years and decades? So we're starting to see if you, if you do polls of, of, of investors uh, in certain countries, uh, I haven't seen it for the whole world, but I've seen it in, in individual markets. Uh, you know, you're starting to see the fact that as many or more people own cryptos than own gold. Uh, and so, and that skews younger. I mean, obviously, if you're if you're in your 30s or 40s or 20s, you're more likely to have that be the case uh, than if you're in your 50s, 60s, or 70s. Uh, and so, generally, we are seeing uh, you know a, a, an adoption of it as as kind of a, a monetary asset. Uh, and so, there's some countries like Singapore that's pretty high, uh, and and whereas other countries are are pretty low. Uh, but you know, in, in countries where it has meaningful adoption. It's generally all, it's starting to get higher than gold in many cases. Now, so far, we don't see that among central banks. They're still buying gold. Uh, that's their asset of choice. And that makes sense because even Bitcoin, as big as it is, uh, you know, it peaked at like 1.2 trillion uh, this year so far. Now it's back below a trillion. Uh, Ethereum is, is a few hundred billion. Uh, and so you know, when, when, when these markets, and they're very volatile, so when these, when these central banks are looking at it, uh, you know, imagine from their perspective the disaster where if they buy Bitcoin and then it's fluctuating around and then you know a tail risk happens and and it doesn't work out and then they're like, why did you buy like digits on a computer? What were you thinking? So with like a billion dollars, like so they they basically it's not big enough that they can really kind of put meaningful amounts of funds into it. Now I do think that if over time Bitcoin continues to grow uh, and, and kind of you know has uh, you know say another kind of you know cycle of adoption, another big bull market. It becomes a multi-trillion dollar asset class. If you have that network effect continue to take off for maybe over half a billion people in the world own it, maybe a billion people in the world own it, uh, then it starts to get big enough and, and maybe a little bit less volatile and central banks can then start you know, potentially using it as a reserve asset. I don't think they're going to just dump all their gold and just pour into Bitcoin, but they can, you know, especially some of the smaller countries might start saying, hey, we want to have a non-zero allocation to this other type of asset. Uh, and especially because not only can they store it as an asset like gold, but they can also use it if they need to as a permissionless payment. They can go around all these uh, international finance channels uh, if they're sanctioned or if, if other things happen, and they can actually just make payments. And so you actually see, for example, maybe countries like Iran have, have dabbled in that to some extent uh, because it, it does offer that kind of technology basis for them. And, and people might think that's good or bad, but that's just Bitcoin is. Uh, and so you, you could start to see countries maybe hold a little bit of it. Uh, but I think overall, it's it's one of those things where it generally has to get a little bit bigger before most uh, central banks would even really kind of consider it. We see, I mean, interesting news out of, out of uh, El Salvador, right? So that's it's legal tender. Uh, and so they're going to have some in their fund. Uh, and so that is pretty interesting there. That's kind of a, a you know, kind of a certainly not something I expect to happen in 2021. And so that's actually pretty interesting. And so I mean, maybe maybe it's one of those things where I'm saying, I don't think a, a major central bank's going to hold it in the next two years, but who, who knows? If it gets big enough, you can start to get surprises like that. Yeah, and I think that El Salvador will be a pretty interesting, I guess, experiment and example for the rest of, or for emerging markets, small countries like Chile, 
um, and yeah, neighboring countries in Central America to see how that plays out and and where that takes us. Um, Lynn, thank you so much. This has been enlightening and so interesting, and I really appreciate you taking the time. I was happy to be here, and uh, you know, hopefully, uh, it was helpful uh, to your to your uh, audience. Surely was. All right. Take care. Thank you very much. Bye.